following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is class number 11, session number 11 in our discussion of Morgoth's Ring. And tonight, tonight we are going to defy Zeno's paradox and we are going to finish the laws and customs of the Eldar. I'm convinced. I'm feeling good about this. Uh, I said last week we were going to talk about the Necromancer and we didn't get to the Necromancer again, but by golly, we're going to do it tonight. There, we're going to talk about Elvish Rebirth, we're going to talk about the Necromancer, and we're going to talk about remarriage among the elves and trying to figure out exactly how marriage works. Um, that is what we're going to do. <laughs> Zach is thanking me <clears throat> for... Um, uh, uh, the slowdown, right? Enabling to catch up on the readings. I know that there are some who did need a little extra time, so that's that's fine. I'm very happy for to have that as a uh, uh, consequence, right? Of uh, of of the the slowdown here in the middle of the book. But anyway, it's totally it's, it's so happening this week that we're going to finish the laws and customs among the Eldar. So. Um, but before I jump straight back into the text in my tremendous enthusiasm to get through the rest of it, uh, I am going to first uh, give an important public service announcement concerning the forthcoming class. The finalists for our next discussion has been happening, right? Uh, we, we, we've, dis we've decided on the finalists uh, for next time. Um, this is an announcement, uh, Chris, absolutely. Uh, and it's an announcement that, first off, we're going to have the big announcement of what our next book will be next time. So next week uh, is, when we, uh, is when I plan to announce that. That means voting is going on now. So for those of you who haven't seen it yet, this is the voting for next time. So uh, you will be picking two. Pick for your favorite two among the following six nominees. And the nominees are... The Inferno, uh, the uh, first cantica of the Divine Comedy by Dante Alighieri. So that's the first. And uh, there's a theme in the finalists for this time. Uh, second, American Gods by Neil Gaiman. American Gods, a finalist again, uh, threatening to threatening the all-time record for number of times a book has been a finalist uh, so far. It's not alone. There are others. Hitchhiker's Guide. Goodness, that was on the final, in the final list for uh, many, many times. Uh, okay, so Inferno, American Gods, Paradise Lost by John Milton. My goodness. Uh, so we have a very, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> gods and devils theme so far here, right? The Fairy Queen, book one by Edmund Spencer. So the Fairy Queen was nominated uh, and was elected as a finalist. I stipulated book one. That was me. Uh, because, look, you guys know uh, what it's like to talk about poetry with me. And seriously, ask yourself, if we were to set out to do a thousand pages of poetry... The Fairy Queen is literally the longest poem in the English language, okay? And uh, we would be, I mean, so like imagine, think of Mallory, right? I mean, it took us almost a year to discuss, to read through all of Sir Thomas Mallory. Um, this, the Fairy Queen, is in verse, in rhyming verse, and it's twice as long as Mallory. So 
Um, yeah, uh, that would be. So basically, so I I kind of stepped in and said, look, the fairy. I, I mean, look, I'm very happy to talk about the Fairy Queen. One of my favorite poems. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on the Fairy Queen. I love the Fairy Queen, but um, we can't. We can't possibly do that in one shot. So we're going to treat that as a serial. Um, we'll do book one. Uh, so should the Fairy Queen get elected, we'll do book one. And then it, it would have to win again. Book two would have to win again for us to continue it, uh, essentially. I think it's the only really fair way to uh, uh, to to uh, to do. So, okay. Um, uh, and, uh, and five, The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. And six, Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman. So we've got two Gaimans, uh, uh, two works of Neil Gaiman that uh, made our final list. Um, we still haven't done a Gaiman yet, but again, he's been uh, a very, very frequently nominated author. So we have a, an extremely uh, medieval theme uh, to uh, our finalists this time. Uh, in fact, American Gods is the only, like, modern fantasy or science fiction work in the whole group. I know, you know, the Norse mythology one is, um, uh, is a, a modern book. I mean, I'm not trying to pretend that that's a, a work of medieval literature itself, but, but still, it's not like a, a sort of a normal one, right? It's not sort of a traditional um, modern fantasy work. But um, anyway, so, oh yeah, Jennifer, uh, the Fairy Queen, as she said, and the Fairy Queen is only, what, two-thirds complete? Uh, no, one-quarter Actually, one quarter complete. He projected it to be 24 books long, and only six books are completed of the Fairy Queen. So yes, 4,000 pages of poetry in Spenserian stances uh, were what was projected there. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, so it's... Uh, <laughs> Do you know, Tim, I got to tell you, it sounds pretty likely that uh, uh, one way or another, um, the, the Mythcard Academy discussions are going straight to hell, um, <laughs> where there seems to be a magnetic pull in that direction here, right? Uh, in, in, in several options here. Um, so anyway, yeah, these, these will be great. I mean, it's uh, really, uh, really heavy stuff. As I said, a very heavy medieval... Um, uh, a very heavy medieval uh, flavor in these finalists, but this is going to be great. I, I'm excited for any one of these. I'm not going to veto any of them. Just wanted to make sure that that's clear in advance. Um, I did have the one clarification that I did want to. I did want to split up the Fairy Queen because that would be. Uh, I mean, as it was, I, I kind of waffled about Paradise Lost. Also, Paradise Lost, also a fairly weighty uh, book, but it's nothing like the simple bulk, the simple length of uh, of, of the Fairy Queen. Um, we could do it would be long. I mean, it's 12 books of poetry, um, but that I mean, I can't there's no way we could just do book one of Paradise Lost. I mean, that would be, you know, yeah, we can't do that. So if Paradise Lost wins, we're doing the whole thing. Um, but um, uh, Inferno. Yeah, I mean, I saw somebody else asking, like, you know, can we really stop at Inferno? Yeah, same same principle. Um, happy to go on and do Purgatorio and Paradiso afterwards. But uh, Purgatorio and Paradiso, they would be in future elections. They would have to they would have to win. Um, uh, so the uh, the translation of Dante, which translation of Dante? I haven't 100 percent decided yet. Um, uh, I mean, I can tell you the one that I 
lean towards the one that's my favorite from back in the days of my own medieval training, my own undergraduate and graduate days. Uh, my favorite had always been um, Alan Mandelbaum's uh, uh, translation. Um, I liked it because it's facing page and it doesn't try to rhyme in English, which is one of my pet peeves of Dante translations. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah. So, oh yeah, one with rhyming couplets, Stephen. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, Tim, I, I, I you know... Um, I think it's uh, people are trying to try a, an extreme case, you know, uh, like since I like talking about poetry so much, but get so bogged down in it. Let's see what happens if, uh, you know, we sail off on hundreds and hundreds of pages of poetry. You know, there we go. But uh, anyhow, so those are our finalists. Uh, please do, if you are a member of the Council of the Wise, please do uh, vote. You can vote here, mythgard.org slash academy slash voting. There's a voting um, uh, thing at the bottom of the page here. Um, uh, or uh, you can, there's a, a, the links on the forum. To, actually, I think this is the what you're supposed to be using. And there's a link on the forum to it. So anyway, um, it's... Uh, this should be uh, this should be a lot of fun. So next week I will announce the winner, and you will know what book to get and everything. As we're not that we're <laughs> moving very swiftly towards the end of this book, but we're totally getting there. Uh, so tonight, yeah, exactly. Stephen says Mythgard's the Fairy Queen class because exploring the Lord of the Rings is just too fast paced. Exactly, exactly. Um, now I will say, just as a disclaimer. Um, if we do one of the epic poems, <laughs> sorry, can I, can I just say one of the epic poems? I can't believe I just used that phrase. How many times do we use that phrase? Fully half of the works that are nominated for next time are epic poems, right? Um, anyway, if one of the epic poems should be, uh, well, you know, the Fairy Queen isn't exactly by genre an epic, but anyway, you know what I mean. Um, so uh, the um, uh, if we do one of the epic poems, I'm not going to be doing a line by line reading. You don't have to worry about me doing a line by line reading of, you know, 200 pages of poetry or something like that. Um, but uh, but there will certainly we will certainly be talking about the poetics at various points. I mean, there certainly will be obvious moments where we're really going to want to pause and look at uh, how the verse is working and how the rhyme schemes are working and stuff. There's some fascinating stuff that we can see there. Spencer. Um, uh, Spencer is, of course, you know, Milton and Dante are tolerably well-known. Edmund Spencer uh, was uh, just a wonderful... Uh, versifier. He was incre he was extremely creative um, in developing different verse forms and different rhyme schemes. Uh, he was um, uh, really kind of uh, painted outside the lines a lot. Uh, did a lot of really uh, and so the Spenserian stanzas. The entire poem, the entire Fairy Queen, is written in. Um, 11 line stanzas with a really complex rhyme scheme in each stanza. Uh, it's uh, pretty awesome. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. And so beautiful. Oh my goodness. Uh, the Spencer's verse in The Fairy Queen is some of the most mellifluous verse in English. 
but here I am stumping. I shouldn't do that. Um, I'm just you guys are just getting me distracted talking about stuff. I could say lots of really good things about lots of them. I don't want to. I don't want to bias votes. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, okay. Have I considered what Tolkien works? We'll move on to. No idea. It's not up to me, Jocelyn. I just take orders here. This is uh, all. This is a democratic process. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, we're going to be finishing up. Um, you know, we only have two more volumes left after this. And no, we're not going to do a class on the index. That's not going to happen. <laughs> it's several people have been teasing me about that. You know, looking forward to our class in which we do a a page-by-page page analysis of the volume of index of indices. Uh, no, we're not going to do that. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Stephen is suggesting a class on the, on the Rankin, Bass, and Bakshi adaptations. You know, I would be totally fine with that. Um, I would, uh, if like uh, the Rankin-Bass Hobbit, for instance, were to win an election, I would be happy to go through that. Um, you know, we'd do much more than one session on that. Uh, that would be really interesting. So no, I'm happy to talk about adaptations. Um, uh, lots of uh, lots of things that we could do there. Um, okay. Anyway, uh, let us get back into the text because I want to talk about the necromancer tonight. So we were just getting to the point where we were about to talk about Elvish reincarnation. Uh, that was, um, we were about to start talking about that. And you'll remember that I had, I had said, and for those of you who weren't studying with us at the time or haven't watched recordings of the earlier version, you know, the early, like the book of lost tales stuff that we did low these many years ago now. Um, that was an original concept. Uh, the idea that elves, after they die, return to Valinor and then can be re-embodied in the, you know, in uh, uh, in, in in newborns, um, was an old idea, and that seemed to have been dropped. Um, it seemed to be dropped relatively quickly, and now. Um, all of a sudden, it appears to be back. And let's look at how and why this comes to be. Now, the Eldar hold that to each elf child a new Fea is given, not akin to the Fear of their parents, of the parents, save in belonging to the same order and nature. And this Fea either did not exist before birth, or is the Fea of one that is reborn. So notice the first clarification here. So the question is, where do elf spirits come from? Elf fea, right? Elf souls. Where do they come from? Um, are they derived from the spirits, the fear of the parents, right? Do we get like, because that's one way to conceive of it, right? That it's, 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 it's imaginable that it could happen that way, that, you know, sort of like, a portion of the of the fea of the mother and a portion of the fea of the father merge together right and make this new unique blend which grows into a a, a new fea right uh, which is a blending of the two and then presumably the you know the mothers and fathers fear which are like probably not injured by giving a i mean like i don't know right that's one way to think about it. Um, 
Because we have to ask, would they have to grow, grow back the bit of their fair that they lost? Or is that just too materialistic a way to think about it, right? Is it not like that? Anyway, Tolkien says, no, that's not, that's not how it goes at all, right? One consequence of this, therefore, is that the fea of an elf is whole and complete, right? It cannot be chopped up or sectioned off, right? We don't get... So you're, you're related to your parents, right? An elf child is related to its parents, um, but it, it, its fea is not derived from them. It is whole and unique on its own, right? So an elvish fea, when an elf baby is conceived, a fea, a whole new fea, comes in from outside, Right, and it is either supplied, right? That that is either I am presuming here an act of creation by Iluvatar, right? If it did not exist before birth, then Iluvatar is bringing into being a, a brand new elf soul, right? A brand new elf fea, and popping it into the fetus or the embryo or whatever. It sounds like life begins at conception for elves, according to the laws and customs among the Eldar. Um, Anyway, moment of conception, whammo, right? Because that's why they celebrate, like, their birthdays, not their birthdays, but it's their conception days that they celebrate. So that seems fairly definitive on the question of from Elvish points of view. Um, yeah, Tony says babies aren't horcruxes. Right, exactly. Babies are not horcruxes. Uh, so, okay. So at the moment of conception, whammo, the the new Elphaea comes into being, Right. Either as an act of creation, again, presumably by a Louvatar. I don't think that was stated, but I think that's implicit, right? Um, maybe I'm forgetting and it was stated, but I, I, again, it's pretty clear the Valar don't do it, right? The elves don't do it. This is, I think, a, this is, I think, an Louvatar thing. Children of a Louvatar and all that. Um, or, <coughs> excuse me, of one that is reborn, right? So the other option is that an elf comes in, so it is still possible to have the... or a possible again for the baby to be grandpa, right? If grandpa's soul comes in whammo at the time of conception, right? So, okay, let's, co let's continue. The new Fea, and therefore, in their beginning, all Fear, they believe to come directly from Eru. Oh, yeah, it says it right there. Okay, yeah, I think it does say it, doesn't it? And from beyond Ea. Therefore, many of them hold that it cannot be asserted that the fate of the elves is to be confined within Arda forever and with it to cease. This last opinion they draw from their own thought, for the Valar, having had no part in the devising of the children of Eru, do not know fully the purposes of Eru concerning them, nor the final ends that he prepares for them. Now, this is a very interesting conclusion. So, okay, yes, the Elvish Fea, um, Elvish Fea, when they are generated, and therefore all Fea, at one point or another, right, 100% of all Elvish Fea uh, come direct from Eru, or special acts of creation by Eru, and they come from beyond Ea. They're not recycled from anything within Ea, right? They come from without. Okay. Um, therefore, the conclusion that they draw from this, therefore many of them hold, many of the elves, hold that it cannot be asserted that the fate of the elves is to be confined within Arda forever and with it to cease. Do you see the logic there? So one possibility, of course, always has been if the lives of the Eldar are co-terminous 
with Arda, right? Then, well, Arda has an expiration date, right? I mean, sooner or later, Arda is going to come to an end. So what happens to elves then, right? Is that when humans get the last laugh, right? Well, they their souls have left Arda, indeed, right? But they're still somewhere, right? Out there, nobody knows exactly where they are, or the elves don't know exactly where they are because they're confined to Arda, and they know, all they know is they're not here anymore, right? But they're somewhere. Whereas, what, the elves, it's just good night, sweet prince at the end of Arda, and all elves are annihilated at the end of Arda? Um, so that's one, it's always been one possibility, right? Of the, 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 the way that Tolkien has defined elvish immortality, right? But they hold the origin of elf souls, some hold, many hold, right? That the origin of elf, elf souls being from beyond Ea shows that the fate of the elves is not to be confined within Arda forever and with it to cease. Because their fear, which is who they are, remember like the, your, your fundamental identity, you are a fea and you have a hroa. That's clearly true of elves, right? If you're an elf, you are a fea and you are given a hroa, right? And you're supposed to hold on to your hroa and take care of it and the two of them, you know, go together and uh, the the Hroa is eventually sort of joined inextricably, right? Uh, so that they're not killable anymore. Um, their Hroa isn't killable anymore, right? We talked about that last time. Okay. But you are a Fea. That's who you are. So if who you are comes from outside of Ea, not just outside of Arda, mind, but outside of Ea, you're not just an extraterrestrial ported in, right? You come from Iluvatar's timeless halls, your soul, if you're an elf. Right? I'm not saying anything about human souls in here. Um, uh, if that's true, then it doesn't make any sense, say many, right, for that soul to stop when artist stops. Because it's not tied, ultimately, in fact, to Arda. Their fea may exist with it. They, they have some kind of long-term contract with Arda, Right? Their life endures in the mode in which they know their, they are familiar with their lives, right? And that will endure as long as Arda endures. Things are going to change when Arda comes to an end, right? At the end of the world, though, what happens? Does that life come to an end or does it change? Does it transform into something else? And many of the Eldar say, since our souls came from outside of Arda in the first place, they're going to go to outside of Arda at the end. Right, it's going to be a change. It's going to be a transformation, not going to be a termination at the very end. Um, uh, and yeah, Tony says the Ainur don't seem to think they will be annihilated. No, exactly. Though the Valar have bound themselves to Arda, they are likely to survive the experience of Arda ending. Right. And so for the elves, it's the same way, literally the same. Right. Their souls come from the same general zip code, right, that the Ainur came from. They don't remember it, right? They weren't conscious there. Uh, they didn't, in a sense, live there. They, they, Their life begins when they are conceived within Arda. Now, you can see this is not, we're, we're not being told that this is a unanimous opinion, right? Um, but we are told that many believe this. 
Those who don't believe this presumably hold that since life begins at conception, life will end at the ultimate death, which is at the end of Arda, right? Um, and so that if they're, even if their Fea did come in some sense from beyond Ea, so, uh, you know, but nevertheless, the life itself didn't start, and so therefore the life will end uh, when Arda ends. Um, that's, um, that seems to be you know, one can sort of see the argument uh, in either way. Um, now, Chris is asking, is this a move away from the notion of Arda remade from, you know, the Dagor Dagoroth? No, I don't think so, Chris, um, because I think that that's simply another way to describe what I was what I was characterizing as a, as a change rather than a termination. Right. Um, Arda itself is going to end, but Arda itself also may experience a change rather than a termination, right? Um, if Arda is indeed remade, if Arda is indeed reborn, um, if there is, in fact, a new heaven and a new earth, the old earth will have passed away. Old Arda will be gone, right? The old Arda to which the elves and their lives and for their long lives are bound will be gone. So that contract will be completed, Right. But, uh, so Chris, I think it to be my suspicion, I don't know for sure, but my suspicion is that those elves who believe, those, those among the Eldar who believe that um, the uh, fate of the elves is not confined within Arda uh, forever and with it to cease, those who do believe that are probably, I would guess, proponents of the um, Arda remade uh, doctrine, basically. Um, that would be, I think, part of the point. But, um, uh, yeah, Stephen says, I want to hear a philosophical debate between elves. Uh, anyway, we can work that into film film. Well, Stephen, we're working on that. Season five, actually. Uh, it's, um, season five is when we're going to be including the Athrobeth, actually. Uh, Andreth is going to be one of our, uh, actually, Finrod and Andreth are going to be our two sort of focal characters throughout all of season five. So there's totally going to be some philosophical debating going on. Um, we'll see how we can plan to work that into gripping drama, but uh, we'll see. Um, yeah, Tony, exactly. The references to the second music in which the children are included that would seem to be exactly this kind of doctrine, this kind of, th that, that doctrine of Arda remade. Um, and that, so, again, I would think that, they, that those two things would correlate, right? Those who believe that elvish souls, that elvish Fear will not be snuffed out when Arda comes to an end are those who most likely also believe most firmly in the idea of Arda remade, of the new music. Um, in which the children of Iluvatar will take a part. And so they need to be there in order for that to happen, right? Um, so, yeah, okay. But notice where this... Well, so we have the fundamental doctrine. Now, keep in mind also, by the way, Note about how the Valar relate to this. The Valar have no opinion on this. They don't know what's going to happen to the souls of the children of Iluvatar because, of course, the children of Iluvatar weren't their idea. They had no participation in that, right? Um, it was not their part of the music. So they cannot answer this question for the Eldar. That's why this is still a dubious question. Um, however, the one thing... Um, 
we also have they believe to come direct from Eru and from beyond Ea. So the source of the new Fear. Um, that probably has more um, uh, Valarian authority than the question of what happens after the end of Arda. Because again, the, the, that question, what happens to the souls of the children of Iluvatar after the end of Arda, there's no manner by which the Valar could have access to that. Um, they know that they didn't do it, that they had nothing to do with the where Elvish souls come from, right? So um, the Eldar seem to be on probably firmer ground, Um about where their souls come from. They don't come from the Valar. They almost certainly come from Iluvatar and therefore from beyond Ea. But uh, there could be, of course, other ways to think about that conceivably. Um, all right, let's keep going. Later, when the elves became aware of rebirth. So keep in mind, it took elves a long time to figure out that rebirth happened. This is one of the things that's really fascinating about this whole thing, is that elves, of course, elves don't know anything about the metaphysics of their own souls and bodies, and, of course, neither do the Valar. So this is all learned by experimentation as we go through, right? Um, the, the idea that elves are reborn in the bodies of their descendants is only discovered experimentally, and of course, therefore, it takes a while. Um, if Muriel is the first of all elves to die, and she's a bad data point because she chooses not to come back, and so we have to wait for the next one to die, and I guess that's Finway. Finway is the first... Well, but there would be others probably on Middle-earth, like folks who vanished from around Quivienen and whatnot, but anyway, we don't really know. They don't really know. Um, uh, so... It's only when elves have died, have lived, have died, and have had their Fear reborn in later. So it's only later on when, you know, you've got this kid, right, who's growing up, and all of a sudden he remembers, oh my gosh, I'm grandpa, right? Only at that time do they realize that this is a thing, and now they've got to work this out, right? Okay, so when they became aware of rebirth, this argument was added. If the fear of children were normally derived from parents, from the parents and akin to them, then rebirth would be unnatural and unjust. It's an interesting statement. If the fear of children were normally derived from the parents and akin to them, then rebirth would be unnatural and unjust, for it would deprive the second parents without consent of one half of their parentage intruding into their kin, a child half-alien. Yeah. That's fascinating, right? I mean, if, if it cannot be true that the fear of the child is derived from the fear of the parents, because if so, rebirth would be monstrously unjust. You follow that? Um... unnatural and unjust. Basically, elvish parents, random elvish parents would be being cheated, right? 
here I, we thought we were having our kid. We thought we were having a, you know, bringing forth this new life into the world. And in fact, we're just unbeknownst to ourselves and without our say-so, providing a vehicle through which this other dude can come back to life? I mean... Um, yeah, Chris, elf children would be like cuckoos in the nest. Yes, yes, it's almost exactly what it would be like. Um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. David says it would make, it would feel to the parents like a changeling. Yes, that is precisely, the cuckoo changeling thing is precisely the, um, uh, precisely the issue here, right? That it would be creepy in that way um, for that to happen. But notice, notice this is not an argument against rebirth. This is an argument against the souls being derived from the parents. So if the child is a changeling, right? If it does turn out to be great-grandpa, right? Being reborn, then you can't say you've been defrauded because it was never going to be your child in that way. It's not derived from you. All elvish parents are only ever the incubators of a soul which is not connected to them, not derived from them, right? That expectation is a false expectation, right? Therefore, if it turns out that the soul that has been born into that has been born in the body of your child is, you know, grandma, what do you have to complain of? You've not been defrauded, right? You have gotten exactly the child that you wanted. It just turns out that child has lived before, right? It's all good. Um, so yes, uh, Christopher Powers. Um, rebirth wouldn't start happening for a very long time, right? Not until souls had recycled, gone through the waiting period, and be ready to come back into the assembly line. Correct. And once it starts happening, yes, there are any fresh fea. So fresh fea still do get supplied, right? Um, even after the rebirth cycle begins, there are still new fea being put in. Yes, definitely. In fact, I believe he says that the recycled fea are still in the minority. Um the rebirth thing is not sort of common in that way. Um, yeah. So Chris says, um, is that also a limit on subcreation? If the children's fea uh, were in some sense a combination of the parents, then it would be something of an act of creation that is rightly available only to the one. Yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, I mean, it's unconscious creation, of course. It's not, but, but yes, um, Right. So that um, the generation of a new soul, right? The, the, the creation, really. I mean, let's call, let's call a spade a spade, right? The creation of a new soul, the introduction of a new soul into Arda, that's Iluvatar territory, right? Elves don't have the credentials for that. And so in that way, Chris, it is like, it is like sub-creation. People can't create, they can only sub like Creatures can't create, they can only sub-create, right? And so, therefore, to combine their two souls together to make a new soul is above their pay grade, 
in that way, just like creation is above their pay grade. All they can do is subcreate. Um, so George asks the very sensible follow-up question, um, would the Roa be akin to the parents? That is to say, do elf children look like their parents? Yes, we know that elf children do look like their parents, and I don't see any reason why the Roa would not be derived from, in some sense, akin to the parents. It's not that there's no concept of elvish kinship, right? Um, I don't think that that's the point. In fact, we know that there's the, you know, the elves holding together in houses and families is kind of a big deal culturally, right? So it's clearly not true that Tolkien is attempting here to undermine the idea of of kinship. Like, you know, you parents have no investments in their children because they're not, like, connected with them at all. They're just like, hey, you know, honey, you want to sign up to be the to be the host of a new elf, right? That sounds like fun, right? It won't really have anything to do with us other than the fact that we're going to incubate it, right? But, uh, yeah, that, that's not the situation. It's just the soul. It's the fea itself. Uh, and, Chris, again, I'm coming back to your... Um, uh, uh, I'm coming back to your... Um, uh, Subcreation parallel there, um, and that seems very sensible. Um, uh, yeah. Um, now, Tony asks, wasn't there an earlier concept of there being a fixed number of elves? Yes, I think so. I have a vague memory that there were a certain number of elvish souls, max, and that, like, the recycling had to keep happening because there weren't any new fair being new fair being introduced from outside. Um, that I, I, I can't cite chapter and verse on that, but I'm pretty sure that's the, that's the sense that I remember Tony from the book of lost tales. Um, that does not seem to be the case. New fair, new fair are definitely being plugged into the system here, uh, as we move forward, even after the recycling starts going on. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. No, uh, there are se se several of you are pointing out several examples of elves who clearly and explicitly physically take after their parents. Yes, yes. No, totally agree. Um, Feanor, Feanor's kids, the children of Fenarfin with their blonde hair. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, okay. But yeah, uh, Christopher and there was somebody else who was asking similar, like, okay, hang on a second. If your fair, if your fair is not, um, derived from your parents, how about Muriel and Feanor? How does that, how does that work? Right. We'll come to that. Um, though remember that, he described this sort of nurturing process, right? Um, it's not, um, it's not just, I think that it is very possible for, um, a pregnant mother like Muriel to be, to have her spirit drained in a sense, right? But keep in mind, what happened to Muriel's Fea? was not diminution of the Fea itself, 
The soul is inviolable. Remember, it is unassailable by any external things, right? That doesn't mean that nothing that happens outside the body can influence them. They can be hurt and injured and despair and all kinds of things. But you always have 100% of a soul. If you're an elf, you always have 100% of a soul. Nobody can take away half your soul. Um, that's not, you can't split your soul to make a horcrux like this. You can't, the soul is indivisible. You can tell Muriel still had 100% of a soul on account of when she's in Mandos. She was not a, a, a wraith in Mandos, right? Um, now, so there is something that happened to her. I'm not saying nothing happened to her, but what I'm saying is that's not how to describe it. It's not, um, you know, the Fea is not like a, a tank that can go drop down to empty, right? Your Fea, you, you, you're, the, the, the link between your Fea and your Hroa may weaken, right? You may decide to leave your Hroa behind through injury, despair, grief, right? That can happen. Um, but that's, that's not about the nature of your Fea. That's about the connection between your Fea and your Hroa. Right, your soul and your body. Um, your soul and your body may decide to part company, just like you and your husband may decide to part company before or after death. Again, thinking of Muriel here, but um, uh, but it is not what is not happening is your fea being diminished, your fea itself lessening. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's hang on. I don't think I even, did I even read the whole thing. I don't think I even read the whole thing. Yeah, no, a child half alien. Let's keep going. Nonetheless, the older opinion was not wholly valid. Was not wholly void. For the, all the Eldar, being aware of it in themselves, spoke of the passing of much strength, both of mind and of body, into their children in bearing and begetting. Therefore, they hold that the Thea, though unbegotten, draws nourishment from the parents before the birth of the child directly from the fea of the mother while she bears and nourishes the hondo and imme- and uh, immediately but equally from the father whose fea is bound in union with the mother's and supports it <laughs> this is the second time that happened where i'm like i think i remember another passage that talks about this and it's of course the next paragraph that i haven't read yet right yes that's the passage i was just thinking about um it was for this reason that all parents desired. I better read the whole thing then. Uh, that all parents desired to dwell together during the year of bearing, and regarded separation at that time as a grief and injury, depriving the child of some part of its fathering. For said they, though the union of the fear of the wedded is not broken by distance of place, yet in creatures that live as spirits embodied, fear communes with fear in full only when the bodies dwell together. This is why you don't get married and have children during time of war or crisis when you're going to have to be traveling and apart, right? It is super important for elvish couples to be together um, because they are nourishing the child. So the, there's the question of the origin of the fea and of the nourishment of the fea, right? Um The Eldar spoke of the passing of much strength, both of mind and of body, into their children, in bearing and begetting. Therefore they hold that the Thea, though unbegotten, 
draws nourishment. So the fea does not come from the fair of the parents, but it does draw nourishment from the parents, directly from the mother and through the mother from the father, because the union of the fear of the mother and father enable the mother to serve as not only a direct source of nourishment to the child, but a conduit of the father's strength as well. And that's why it is so important for elves to be together there. Um, Okay. Um, I think I can wrap my head around this distinction between origin and nourishment, right? And how it can be that although the child's fea is not derived from the fea of the parents, it is strength is passing into it from their fear, right? Um, yeah. Kevin says he's thinking about how Luthien came to be. Not sure I can recommend that, Kevin. <laughs> really not. Um, now, Christopher, that's an excellent question, and I don't know the answer to it. And it's related to George's question. So George's question was, okay, if the if the fea is not derived from the parents, but the hroa is, and there is physical resemblance, right, between the children and parents, what about the hroa of a reborn elf? Does a reborn elf um, physically resemble her original parents or her new parents? Right? It's an excellent question. And in a similar line, Chris, uh, Christopher Powers was just asking, um, the Fea may be very, it may be very different for the second round if the second set of parents were in a drastically different situation from the first. That is, if the Fea is receiving a new round of nourishment, right? Um, and therefore, won't it grow differently? than it did the first time. And, Christopher, I would think, yes, definitely, that the reborn... A reborn elf, in this way, is not just... It's not just like, bam, we're... We've, you know, factory made a new body for you and we're going to shove you into it. But you're the same. Apart from the fact that your body is not the same body, right? You, you've got a new body... Which might be an upgrade, might be a downgrade, who knows, but you've got a new body, but you're otherwise, you're 100% exactly the same. Um, the bringing rebirth into the question, that is, you know, going from conception to birth, especially given what he's saying about, you know, gestation, right, among elves. Um, uh, it would have to be that the fea, the old fea, being reborn would be altered, right? I am not sure that I don't think... <laughs> Let me say this more directly. I suspect that's one of the benefits of rebirth, basically, is that you don't just go back and you're the same again. It's not just round two, right? 
it is you are given a new set of parameters. Um, yeah, you're given a new set of parameters. Exactly, Julie. It's not like the Doctor's re- regeneration in Doctor Who. Um, just, yeah, getting a new body like that, right? And then just kind of like, you know, you're still pretty much the same, but you're, you have a new body, right? And some differences. Um, yeah, it's exactly not like that. Um, because you not only are conceived, you are then nourished. Your fea is nourished during, like, re-nourished, right? During the gestation process. And then you are a child again. And the memory of your former life, as he's going to say, won't return immediately upon birth. In that way, it is, I know several people have made references to Aaliyah from Dune, and I I hear you, as I think of this a lot too, in relation to that. Uh, It's hard not to think of Aaliyah, but um, the difference is that Aaliyah was aware of these things, like, in the womb, right? And so... The phenomenon of Aaliyah from Dune is a baby who already has the memories and awareness of an adult. That's not what happens here with elves. They do not emerge from the womb with the memories of grandma, right? Um, yeah, yeah. That That's not what happens. Um, okay. Jennifer says, do I think the parents can regulate the power the fetus draws from them? Um, right. Or Jennifer, another way to ask that question is, whose fault was it? Muriel's or Feanor's? <laughs> right. Um, I've always thought it was Muriel's, honestly. I don't think it was like Feanor being abusive to his mother from the womb. I kind of got the impression that it was Muriel uh, over-egging the pudding, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. But, um, um, hey, so, I, so a couple of you have mentioned Glorfindel, and I'm going to not talk about Glorfindel. Glorfindel is different. Um, and... Yeah. Gorfindel is a bad data point. Don't want to talk about Gorfindel. Um, it's hard, I know, because he's like the only returned elf that we know for sure. But I don't that we're not we're not at Gorfindel yet. We're not there. We're not there. Um, the retconning that he is going to do for Gorfindel, he has not done yet. Um, until he starts talking about Gorfindel in the text, we're not going to talk about Gorfindel. Just, just saying. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. Matt says, is there a final conception Tolkien had for elf origin? Um, uh, well, it depends on how you define final, Matt, right? Uh, final in the sense of last, yes. Eventually... Tolkien dies, and the concepts stop coming, <laughs> right? But uh, final in the sense of him deciding once and for all this is absolutely the way, that's part of the challenge of editing the Silmarillion. 
Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, th this is definitely, we're not ending here forever. Yeah, there's definitely going to be further thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Chris says, oh, come on, he's still rewriting things. And now Christopher's there to figure out what it all means. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I'm feeling good about this. I, there's obviously more that we could talk about. I'm, what I'm wanting to do here is just make sure to try... So there are two things I want to do. First, the first thing I want to do is try to make sure that we are sufficiently wrapping our brains around the ramifications of what he's saying here, right? So that we can understand the concept of how elves work that he is describing. But I also want to keep our eyes at the higher level. That is like, I, and I mean higher, I'm thinking about an actual altitude metaphor, right? As we go higher and see more of the big picture, right? I want to get like the helicopter view of this as well. Uh, that is that, you know, you know, Matt, using your language, as I was saying last time, that Delta story, right? That how the story is changing, what is happening here, not just what is he describing, but big picture, what is happening here, um, Notice what percentage. Uh, I talked at the beginning of the Laws and Customs of the Eldar about how he's here doing world building with the elves, kinds of world building that he never did before for the elves, right? Um, even though, you know, how by the time we get to this point, you know, by the time we get to the late 50s, Tolkien has thought through so much more what it means to be a hobbit, what it means to be a, 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 a you know a man of Gondor, a man of Rohan, even what it means to be a dwarf than he has what it means to be an elf, um, because that didn't come up so much uh, writing through um, the Lord of the Rings. Right now he's doing that, but the thing that interests me, one trend we can already notice when we kind of back up and look at the big, big picture view here is as he's doing world building, he is extremely interested in these big philosophical and theological questions, right? He's really digging into this stuff. Where do their souls come from and how do they work? What is the metaphysical nature of the connection between the mind and body, between the Fea and the Hroa of elves, right? How does this stuff all actually work? Things which he skimmed really quickly over and did not think through very carefully because it wasn't what he was up to back when he did the Book of Lost Tales. And now he is really sitting down and digging into this. Um, in entirely new ways. Um, and I think that that's really amazing. And Tony, you're right. Um, when we got elves before, especially in the Lord of the Rings context, elves are always generally seen from the perspective of non-elves. So the primary thing that was emphasized, the primary role that the elves had in the, t in the story was to be other, as you say, Tony. Yes, I agree with that. Um, this, like internal elvish experience um, is a, a new thing that has never been defined. But again, notice that he's not just he's defining elvish culture or, you know, emotional experience or what. No, he's doing metaphysics 
right? That's where he is really kind of living, right, when it comes to this stuff here in this text. So, okay, let's keep going. All right, more on rebirth. A houseless fea that chose or was permitted to return to life re-entered the incarnate world through childbirth. Only thus could it return. For it is plain that the provision of a bodily house for a fea and the union of fea with Rondo was committed by Eru to the children to be achieved in the act of begetting. So this answers the question, Tolkien, why are we opening this up again? Why are we going back to the rebirth question? I thought we kicked that. Right? I thought that we were like we had decided that elves didn't get reborn, and we dro- he drops that idea for decades, and now we're going back there. Why? Here's the answer. I think that this is the answer to that question. Because logically, there's only one way that this happens. How else is it going to happen? It's almost like that, and I know he's not explicitly rejecting. Um, I know he's not explicitly rejecting the Doctor Who theory, um, even though it's theoretically possible for Tolkien to have watched some Doctor Who. Not saying that he did. But um, but anyway, <laughs> like, because he is exactly engaging with the question of what is the me- what are the mechanics? What is the process like? Right? Okay, fine. So a fea, an elvish fro- fea can get a new Hroa. How? It's not just going to appear in a big old flash of rainbow-colored light, right? It can't, it can't happen, right? That's not what happens. There is only one orthodox mechanism for the joining up of a fea and a hroa, and that's birth. That's it. Birth is the only mechanism. And so logically, if you're going to give elvish Fear, new Hroar, there is only one factory where that can happen, right? And that is the process of conception and gestation. That's, that seems to be, when he seems to be asking himself, what, again, what are the mechanics? What would it look like? This seems to be his answer. Only thus could it return. There isn't any other... Because if somebody's just snapping their fingers and creating a body like, bam, who can do that? The Valar can't even do that. That's an act of creation. An act of creation beyond even them. Even the Valar are only primarily sub-creators. So, the Hroa has to come from somewhere. The body has to come from somewhere. Birth is the mechanism. So let's keep going. As for this rebirth, it was not an opinion, but known and certain. For the Fea reborn became a child indeed, enjoying once more all the wonder and newness of childhood. But slowly, and only after it had acquired a knowledge of the world and mastery of itself, its memory would awake, until, when the reborn elf was full grown, it recalled all its former life. And then the old life, and the waiting, and the new life, became one ordered history and identity. This memory would thus hold a double joy of childhood, and also an experience and knowledge greater than the years of its body. In this way, the violence or grief that that the reborn had suffered was redressed, 
and its being was enriched. For the reborn are twice nourished, and twice parented, and have two memories of the joy of awaking and discovering the world of living and the splendor of Arda. Their life is, therefore, as if a year had two springs. And though an untimely frost had followed after the first, the second spring and all the summer after were fairer and more blessed. Kind of amazing, right? Kind of amazing. Now, Autoflagellator uh, there on the Twitch chat was asking, where did the Hroa of the Astari come from? Excellent question, sir. No idea. We'll have to wait until we get there, right? Um, yeah, no clue. <laughs> no clue where that where that where those Hroa came from. Um, <laughs> yeah, David says, so when you say, I wish I knew all this when I was younger, that actually happens with a reborn elf. Yes. Now, keep in mind, and Karita, I also do sympathize with what you were expressing before. You know, Karita, earlier on, when we were talking about rebirth, had said, no, thank you. Would rather not have weird flashbacks of a previous life. Being a person is hard enough. I totally see where you're coming from. But remember, we're talking about elves here. They're designed to last all of Arda. It's the reason that that feels the awakening and recalling the memories of before. The reason that that feels perhaps like a burden, right? Is that it's, it's more like Karita, one way that I would say, or one way in which I would, like a, a mechanism by which I would agree with what you were saying would be something like one lifetime is enough people. Right. I mean, goodness, like who would want more than the memories of more than one life? Um, I get that. But quantitatively, elves already have the memories of thousands and thousands of lives. Right. Their memories are designed to accommodate the whole history of Arda. So. A reborn elf doesn't have more memories than other elves. Right. In fact, if anything, there's like a, an interruption in, or something like that in their memories, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Brian. Youth is not, in fact, wasted on the young in elves, right? Certainly not in reborn elves. Um, right. The redressing. You see how the redressing works? And this is really kind of beautiful. Rebirth, like... Rebirth is a two-thumbs-up process, right? Birth, nurturing, and growth, and childhood are blessings. These are blessings, right? And therefore, to be reborn is to be twice blessed. It serves as a redressing of whatever... Something horrible happened to you. If it hadn't, you wouldn't have died, right? The separation, it's only through something awful, right, that can lead to the separation between Hroa and Fea in the first place for elves, right? So some trauma happened to you, by definition, or else you wouldn't have lost touch with your original Hroa, right? But your original Hroa was somehow and for some reason totaled, and so therefore you're now getting a new Hroa. And the getting of the new Hroa is the healing process of the old. Twice nourished, twice parented, and have two memories of the joy of awaking and discovering the world of living 
and the splendor of Arda. It's like a year with two springs. Um, now, Nancy, it is true that you can't get a new life. Re being reborn is not starting fresh at all. It's not at all starting fresh. Because remember, this is part of the original parameter. The life of the Fea is coterminous with Arda. Your Fea can't ever stop. This is the burden of elvishness, right? This is the burden of the firstborn, is that you don't ever stop. Um, so that kind of continue continuation is... An elvish Fea is doomed to continuation. Doomed. That is the doom of the elves. Doomed to continue so long as Arda continues, no matter what. Maybe you continue in your original Hroa. Maybe you continue in the halls of Mandos and stay there for the rest of the history of Arda. Or maybe you are reborn and you continue there. But your continuing is what is going to happen to you if you are an elf, right? And so, why not be reborn and have a new chapter of health and healing and blessing and joy be added to that continuation, right? This new season of second childhood, second nurturing, second growth, second discovery, which is remembered... Right, which is not spoiled by what you already know. You're a child again. You don't remember your old life. You are having, you 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 know how like you can't experience something for the first time again. Well, you can, but here's the bonus that reborn elves get. Not only do they re-experience these things for the first time, they remember both of their first time experiences of discovering the splendor of Arda. Right? They look back at both of their childhoods with full memory after they're fully grown. So they have the benefit. They are enriched by the memories of both of their childhoods, just as they, their spirits and bodies have both been nourished and enriched by both of their sets of parents. Um, Zach says, does that mean that an elf in Mandos uh, ready to be reborn has to wait until a time of peace to return? Yes, presumably. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so Carrie asks, what does the rebirth also sort of like, you know, retreat or reset the fading? I would think so. Because in as much as the fading is all about the relationship between your Fea and your Hroa, well, you've got a brand new Hroa, right? So that relation, your memories might extend back all the way to the first time you were born, right? But yet, you still have a, you know, your Hroa still has that, that new Hroa smell, right? I mean, it's still, like, the relationship between Hroa and Fea is still new. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you would have to wait for a time of peace. And, and Michael, presumably, yeah, you have to wait for someone in your family to want a baby, Yes. And somebody was asking, I forget who it was, who makes the call, right? You know, the elf mommy and the elf daddy love each other very much, right? And uh, it's conception day, right? So 
what happens and who makes the call, right? There's a waiting list, right? There's like the standby list in the, I mean, I don't know if there's like a board on the wall in Mandos, right? I'm next up for rebirth. Um, and, or, but who, who decides we're going to tap the first person on the list in you get, or, or is there going to be a creation of a brand new Faya? Uh, and what's the balance and what's the frequency? And again, who, we don't know. Um, we don't know who else decides. Um, <laughs> yeah, autoflagellator, you're right. Feanor perpetually at the bottom of that list. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Jennifer, yes, Jennifer says, if all the living elves decide to stop having babies, are the dead ones out of luck forever? Yes. I mean, yeah. Remember, uh, uh, only thus could it return, right? There is no other mechanism for the fea Hroa combination than birth. So no birth equals no rebirth. QED. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, Matt, I also am guessing that elf fertility is extremely predictable. Um, not only based on the fact that they know the date of conception with uh, some fairly significant certainty, right? Um, but um, you, I would think that it's part of that whole uh, coherence of Hroa and Fea thing that probably, you know... He doesn't say this, I'm pretty sure, but I'm guessing that elves don't have to, like, try a whole bunch of times before they get pregnant. Um, that, I think, doesn't seem... Yes, Tony, it does seem like an act of will to conceive. Um, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. David says, why didn't Tolkien write a more explicitly reborn elf character to explore this? <clears throat> because he didn't write any more elf characters <laughs> after writing this, <laughs> primarily. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, uh, no, rebirths don't only happen in the Blessed Realm, Cecilia. Rebirths happen, happen in Middle-earth, too. Pretty sure they do. Um, or can. I think so. Um, not in time of war, but uh, but I think they can. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. You guys' questions are so good. You guys are, like, all of these theoretical questions that you're asking, this strikes me as being precisely in the spirit of what Tolkien is doing himself here, right? Exactly the kinds of questions that he's working through. Um, I am not sure that his version of this has answers to all of your questions, or rather that he would be comfortable to all of the answers to these questions um, necessarily. But, but I think they're all exactly the right kinds of questions. Okay. 
For there was for all the fear of the dead a time of waiting, in which howsoever they had died they were corrected, instructed, strengthened, or comforted according to their needs or deserts, if they would consent to this. But the fea in its nakedness is obdurate, and remains long in the bondage of its memory and old purposes, especially if those were evil. Those who were healed could be reborn, if they desired it. None are reborn or sent back into life unwilling. The, the others remained, by desire of or command, fea, fear unbodied, and they could only observe the unfolding of the tale of Arda from afar, having no effect therein. For it was a doom of Mandos that only those who took up their life again might operate in Arda, or commune with the fear of the living, even those that had once been dear to them. Okay, so much here. All fear need a time of waiting, so nobody gets on the express back to rebirth, right? Everybody has a time of waiting after they die, before they can be reborn, all elves, howsoever they had died. And they receive what they need and deserve. Correction, instruction, strengthening, or comfort, right? But they only receive it if they consent to it. They can opt out of being comforted, instructed, strengthened, or corrected. They can opt out of that. The fea in its nakedness is obdurate and remains long in the bondage of its memory and old purposes, especially if these were evil. Um, yeah. Um, Nancy says, I know the Fea isn't exactly a ghost, but it seems to behave a little like a ghost, obdurate and committed to its old memories and purposes. Yes, Nancy, that I think is not an accident. I think that what you are, because you, you are correct, the Many of the traditions around ghosts, right, um, are related to the me- are related to memory, right? That like ghosts are spirits of those who have died, but who sort of are holding on to their memories of their lives, which is why you know a ghost will appear in a house where the person lived during life, right? Because their in their memories are still holding on to this to this place, right? That's that's part of the. Uh, uh, one anyway of the traditions of um, of ghosts and ghost stories, right? Um, so, Nancy, I do think that you are right to suggest that there's a similarity here between that. And my suspicion is that this is uh, this is one of those kinds of things where this is like the explanatory story. This is like the truth behind ghost stories, right? Ghost stories aren't exactly right. It doesn't really work like that. But it's not based on nothing either, right? There's something really behind it. And and this is the thing. This is the truth that's really behind it. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Mm. So many questions. 
Stephen is saying, so there are no elf ghosts or elf oath breakers? Well, not so much. Hang on, because there's a separate category here. We'll get to that. And we're almost up to necromancy now. As you can see, we are hurtling fast towards necromancy, right? Um, good. A couple of you are remembering Finrod walking with his father. Um, I don't know. What can I say? Uh, when that original line was written about Finrod walking with his father, Tolkien hadn't thought through all this stuff, right? Um, so my first impulse would be to call that line an imperfectly retconned line, right? Uh, but you could also say that, and I think this would be quite defensible, even from within the text as it stands, that the text about Finrod walking with his father. Um, it, it doesn't mean he did it immediately. Um, it didn't mean that, like, at that moment in the story, like, while Baron and Luthien were sitting there, Finrod was already walking with his father. It said Finrod walks with his father, like, when the story is being retold. Like, so from the person telling the story to the person listening to the story, you know, now, by now... That's, you know, what's happening, right? Um, I think the tense shift suggests that. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, yeah, yeah uh, George is also thinking about no, no haunting. Well, hang, hang, hang on. We're getting there. We're getting to the hauntings. Um uh, okay. No, Brian, I also believe that Feanor is not very open to correction or instruction uh, in the halls of Mandos, uh, which is presumably among the reasons why he ain't ever leaving, right? Because um, they do have to consent. Um So yeah, they have to they have to deal with things first. They have to be instructed. And remember, this is going to be... When an elf is reborn, and it goes through its second childhood and then remembers, part of that whole continuation, part of that whole life that it will remember, it will remember its first childhood, it will remember growing up, it will remember the traumatic experience from which it which killed it, right? Then it will remember its time of waiting and the instruction and strengthening and comfort and correction that it received during that time. And then it will remember its second childbirth. Again, its second childhood, right? And discovery. Um, so all of those things are part of the continuous life memories of the reborn elf. Um, so James, yes, this is absolutely elf purgatory. Um, if you are unfamiliar with the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, and many are unfamiliar with it, even if they... Th there are a lot of people who mess up purgatory. There are a lot of people who um, misunderstand the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. That is the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Okay, so it's part of it, right? It's part of the spirit of it. Um, what happens in purgatory is not punishment. It is not punishment. It is correction, instruction, strengthening, and comforting. That is what purgatory is designed to do. That is the core doctrine and principle of purgatory. Of course, 
Yes, it's all in Leaf by Niggle. It's all in Dante, of course, Stephen, as you say. It's all also in Leaf by Niggle. Um, Leaf by Niggle uh, contains what I have always felt to be the most compelling depiction of purgatory that I've ever read. Um, Niggle's time in the workhouse is purgatory. Um, and so that's what's happening here with the Elvish soul. So they are purged. They are improved. They are helped. They are healed. They receive healing in the blessed realm. Um, that's that's what it looks like right there. Um, those who are healed, so once you go through this process... You could, they could be reborn if they desired it. None are reborn or sent back to life unwilling. Um, so the others remain. The others remain in Mandos. By desire or command, they remain fair unbodied. So all of the dead elves, right, they've been separated from the Hroa. The Hroa are gone. Hroa have decomposed. We are we established that, right? Um, so they're 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 Hroa are pushing up the daisies. They remain as unbodied fair indefinitely. Everyone who's not reborn remains an unbodied fair either by desire or command. So they can choose, they 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 can opt out of rebirth. They don't have to, right? Only volunt rebirth is only voluntary. Or they can be commanded, right? Mandos can say, no rebirth for you, as presumably he has said to Feanor, and which clearly is involved with this whole correction, instruction, strengthening, and comforting process. They have to consent to that process, but that doesn't mean it's optional, right? Uh, if you want to move forward, right, if you want to make any progress, you've got a process you need to undergo here, right? If you want to opt out of that, that's okay, but then there can never be any question of your having another Hroa, right? That's step one. And so what is it like to be a f an unbodied Fea in the halls of Mandos? You can, they observe the unfolding of the tale of Arda from afar, having no effect therein. They cannot interact with the unfolding of the tale of Arda. Because the, only those who took up life again can operate in Arda or commune with the Fear of the living, even with those that had once been dear with them. This doesn't mean, by the way, that they can't commune with each other, right? I think that Finrod could stroll places with his father, right, when they're both in Mandos. Um, what he can't do is come back and talk to anybody else who's alive, um, now, Kevin, that's a very sensible question, and I don't know the answer to it. Um, how do they know what's going on? Like, what's the mechanism of them observing the unfolding of the tale of Arda from afar? Um, Kevin asks, is it like Kurin's view of the world while captured by Morgoth, but less twisted? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, is it like, uh, you know, I mean, is it like pay-per-view? I mean, is it like cable TV and Mandos where you can like click through the like, oh, let's see what's on the Doriath channel tonight, right? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I have no idea the mechanism. Um, uh, but they can watch it from afar. 
but they can't interact with um they can't interact with uh with anyone who is with any living fair yeah Josiah probably is the tapestries right the moving tapestries are uh, are, are doubtless uh the mechanism there yeah yeah um yeah, Brian is imagining the like groups groups of Fear in Mandos watching Turin Turambar's story and being like, "No, oh, you didn't! Oh man, no! Don't look behind the oh, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly." Arthur says Turin was like a really bad reality TV show. Yeah. Yeah, it really, it really was. Um, yeah, well, it does make me wonder. I mean, Nancy's thinking about this as well, like Kevin was. It makes me wonder if, retroactively, what the curse that Morgoth places upon Hurin begins to look like a perversion of what is permitted. So, like... You're still alive, but I'm going to make you like one of the dead souls in, uh, I'm going to doom you to this like non-purgatorial, um, sort of dead existence where you're going to be made to watch and not be able to interact except from Morgoth. Morgoth is twisting it, right? He's not letting him, letting him see everything aright, but more he's still alive. He could be interacting. He should be interacting, right, in theory. Um, But he's going to be prevented from interacting. And so there's a lot more... um, It's a complete perversion. It's parallel, but it's completely uh, perverted of it. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, let's keep going. Necromancy, we did it. So, how about those ghosts? Concerning the fate of other elves, especially of the dark elves who refused the summons to Amon, the Eldar know little. The reborn report that in Mandos there are many elves. So we can get, of course, interviews from elves. So the rest of elves, once elves started being reborn all of the elves got access to the skinny about what happens in Mandos, right? Because, like, somebody was like, oh, yeah, hey, I I remember being in Mandos. I can tell you how it works, right? So, okay. The Reborn report that in Mandos there are many elves, and among them many of the Alamanyar, but but that there is in the halls of waiting little mingling or communing of kind with kind, or indeed of any one fea with another, so they don't hang out all that much. For the houseless fea is solitary by nature, and turns only towards those with whom, maybe, it formed strong bonds of love in life. Okay, so the question is, this happens to all elves, right? No matter what? So, like, the Avari and everybody, they make it over to Mandos too? We'll get there. Um, so, yeah, so, um, basically, so the Reborn are like, yeah... There were some of the, you know, Avari and stuff there, but we didn't hang, right? I mean, I didn't really get to know them while I was there, um, because it's it's really it's a it's a time for, it's a time for, you know, instruction and reflection and 
you know, self-improvement, really not. Uh, it's not like happy hour, right, in Mandos. So, okay. The Fea is single and in the last impregnable. It cannot be brought to Mandos. It cannot be brought to Mandos. It is summoned. And the summons proceeds from just authority and is imperative, yet it may be refused. Among those who refused the summons, or rather invitation, of the Valar to Amon in the first years of the elves, refusal of the summons to Mandos in the halls of waiting is, the Eldar say, frequent. It was less frequent, however, in ancient days, while Morgoth was in Arda, for his servant or his servant Sauron after him. For then the Fea unbodied would flee in terror of the shadow to, to any refuge, unless it were already committed to the darkness and passed then into its dominion. In like manner, even of the Eldar, some who had become corrupted refused the summons, and then had little power to resist the counter-summons of Morgoth. Okay. All right. So, Josiah, exactly. Mandos is not a res circle. Uh, those of you who don't play Lotro won't understand that reference. But um, that is, when you die, you don't automatically appear there. Right? So, let us attempt from this paragraph to reconstruct the experience of an elf who dies. And now, David, you were talking about wanting to know, like, a story about a reborn elf. This is what I want now, right? I want a first-person account of a story of an elf who died, like, where the death of the elf is, like, happens in chapter three, right, of, uh, of like, the whole story. So, you die. Your body dies. So, imagine, yeah, I don't know, you are... Excellion, right? You're Excellion. You have just died. Whether you drowned or bled out first, I'm not really sure. But you know, uh, or been crushed by the body of Gothmog on top of you. It's uncertain. But anyway, you just killed Gothmog in the bottom of the fountain. Your Roa is done, right? What happens? Immediately, what happens? Your, your Fea and your Roa separate. But your Fea doesn't vanish or reappear somewhere else. It's like there. So there's Ecthelion looking down at his dismembered, drowned, crushed, exsanguinated corpse in the fountain with the ugly corpse of Gothmog on top of it. Right? Okay. So, there you are. You are an unbodied fea, but you're still standing there in wrecked Gondolin, right? Gondolin's still burning around you uh, while you're standing there. Um, what happens? At that point, you hear the summons of Mandos. I don't know what that's like. I don't know if you hear words or if it's just like it... Uh, you know, it, it pulls on you. You feel like this magnetic pull towards the West. I don't know. And if you answer it, I don't know what happens. Do you set out on a journey? Do you have to physically cross the space? Right? I mean, in your unbodied form, do you fly across to Mandos? Do you, like, whoosh to Mandos? Do you zap to Mandos? Do you get beamed to Mandos? I don't know. But you experience the call, the summoning. It is 
imperative, and it proceeds from just authority. But you got a choice. You don't have to go. You can say, no thanks, Mandos, I'm good. I want to stay here and see what's going on. I mean, if you were Ecthelion, you could understand this, right? You're like, I can I, all right, I can't influence anybody anymore, right? Like my unbodied Thea arm is like passing through everybody. No, nobody can hear me, right? Um, except presumably the other unbodied Thea that are popping up all over the place right now today, right? The place is lousy with unbodied Thea. Maybe the Fall of Gondolin wasn't the best example to use. Anyway, um, the summons... You're waiting for the summons. The summons is the, the summons comes. Maybe you say not quite yet. Let me hang for a little bit, right? Uh, I want to stay here in Middle Earth. I don't want to go. But man, man or not Manu, Morgoth is there in Arda, right? And Morgoth has all, he also summons houseless Fea. So. In your experience, in your experience of um, um, your your houseless existence, right? You hear two summons, right? You hear the call from the west. And you hear the call from the north, right? Um, and the folks in the north might come after you, right? Um, they're kind of scary. Um, notice what they can do. Uh, um, an unbodied fea can pass into the dominion of the darkness. Right? He can come and dominate you. Right? That's scary. There's only one place you're going to be safe from that, and that's in the West, right? That's with Mandos. But if you want to, and especially, you know, okay, Mandos is, or Mandos. Morgoth is gone, right? Morgoth has been shown the door, right? Shoved through the gates of night. No more Morgoth, sort of. I mean, he is, but uh, no more Morgoth in Arda, right? Well, then the junior varsity comes in, right? Then Sauron starts doing his summonings, He's still at it, right? Therefore, conclusion. Some of the evil spirits that we see in the Silmarillion, even in the Lord of the Rings, for instance, Barrow Whites, right? Evil spirits that are sent into the Barrows by the Witch King, right? Yeah. Um could therefore have been unbodied Fea of elves who died and refused the summons of Mandos and thus were ensnared and passed into the dominion of the darkness. And that is more likely if their deeds were evil in advance. Right? Um, because if they were already committed to the darkness... If they were serving the darkness, if they were evil in life, then they would definitely pass into the dominion of the darkness. But yes, Stephen, this is only among those who refused 
the summons of the Valar. When you die, you get the call to Mandos and you can go. So this doesn't happen against the will of any of the elves. You stays in Middle-earth, you takes your chances. Seems to be what's happening here, right? Um, Brian says, does this suggest that there were significant numbers of elves who served Morgoth before or after death? Uh, well, it certainly presents it as an existing category, doesn't it? Right? Um, yeah. Now, several of you are asking questions about human oath breakers and stuff. Now, hang on. We're not, who's talking about humans? Right? Humans aren't even on the table right now. This is the laws and customs among the Eldar. Right? Um, so forget humans. Um, we're not there. We're not there. So Marilyn says, could an elf delay a bit? Oh, yeah, sure. Sure. Risky. Not without risk. Right? But yeah. No, you want to cruise for a while? You can do that. You can do that. Um... But uh, it's not safe, right? It's not safe. Now, I agree, a couple of you, uh, Autoflagellator there on Twitch, and also somebody down here. Yeah, Chris. Um, when Saruman dies and his spirit rises up from his now dead Roa and turns to the west, right? Um, the the summons of, of Mandos is perhaps what he's looking for waiting for, right? And it does not receive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Caden asks, could Sauron issue a summons to Fear like Morgoth could? Yes. Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, or his servant Sauron after him. That is absolutely what I take to mean by that. That is how Sauron became the necromancer. Necromancy happens. It works. Okay. More on necromancy. Uh, please do keep in mind my subtitle for this slide. Warning, do not attempt. It is therefore a foolish and perilous thing, besides being a wrong deed forbidden justly by the appointed rulers of Arda, if the living seek to commune with the unbodied. Though the houseless may desire it, especially the most unworthy among them, for the unbodied, wandering in the world, are those who, at the least, have refused the door of life and remain in regret and self-pity. So, there are unbodied spirits wandering around. Remember when I was talking about ghosts before and saying, let's hang on a second before we say there are no elf ghosts? There are elf ghosts. Absolutely are elf ghosts. Um, unbodied Fea who refuse the call of Mandos and don't go back, Right? They can remain in the world and wander about it. They can't interact with it, right? They can't. Um, but they can wander about it. Uh, houseless spirits, the unbodied, wandering in the world. And who does this? Those who, at the least, have refused the door of life and remain, remain in regret and self-pity. There's not a good reason for refusing the summons. Um, now, I, I agree, Matt. I don't know that we can directly apply this uh, to the Istari, to, uh, to Saruman, because, of course, this is about the Eldar. Agreed. But it is an interesting parallel. Anyway, okay. Um, okay, some are filled with bitterness, grievance, and envy. And that's why they've stayed. They don't want to go back to Mandos, because they're bitter. 
they're aggrieved. They are envious and they want to stay, see and watch how things play out and like gnaw their tongues and gnash their teeth, right? Their incorporeal teeth. Some were enslaved by the Dark Lord and do his work still, though he himself is gone. They will not speak truth or wisdom. To call on them is folly. To attempt to master them and to make them servants of one's own will is wickedness. Such practices are of Morgoth, and the necromancers are of the host of Sauron, his servant. So, necromancy works. There are lots of dead spirits out there, dead elf spirits out there, still wandering the world, houseless, unbodied. And they are only doing so because they have refused the call of Mandos, and thus, by definition, are regretful, self-pitying, bitter, aggrieved, and envious. Those are the only kinds of spirits who refuse the call, right? But they're here. They're here. And therefore, it is theoretically possible that there could be a mechanism to connect with them, to talk with them, to ask them questions, or to master them and to make them servants of one's own will. These are more Gothian practices. Sauron did it. The necromancers, plural, are of the host of Sauron, his servant. Sauron is the master of necromancers. That is what, retroactively, that is what it meant. Um... Sauron Thu was called a necromancer back in the Lay of Lathian. You know, we're talking 1930? No, that was the return to it. It was the 19, it was about 1920-ish that he started. 1918? Maybe he started it? Um, and then returned to it in 1930? Um, anyway, uh, this is... Um, yeah, Josiah says, maybe some of those uh, spirits who do his work still are waiting for the Dark Lord to do something, like uh, uh, stretch his hand over Dead Sea and Withered Land. Yeah, exactly. The, in the Barrowites, I think that we're seeing exactly this. Um, spirits that were enslaved by the Dark Lord and do his work still, though he himself is gone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, uh, And by the way, after Sauron is defeated uh, at the end of The Lord of the Rings... I don't think the Barrow Whites have gone away. They're still there, right? Uh, Barlam and Butterbur has heard that the land up around Anuminus, uh, up, up around Fornost, right, uh, is, um, is haunted country, right? Um, he might not be wrong. No reason to think he's totally wrong about that, right? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um... Yeah, Nancy, exactly. Um, Nancy says, it's really interesting, the idea that the spirits of the dead are around and know stuff, but talking to them isn't worth it because their perspective is warped. Yeah, exactly. You're not, it's, it's a bad idea, first of all, because it's a wicked thing. It's a wicked thing to attempt to commune with or to, to enslave the spirits of the dead. Um, but... Um, uh, but we um we don't know 
but yeah, it, it, it's not only perilous, it's also foolish to try to commune with the spirits of the dead. But hang on, let's, let's keep going. Some say that the houseless desire bodies, though they are not willing to seek them lawfully, by submission to the judgment of Mandos. So, I mean, you could you could put yourself in in the queue for a new body, but you've got to do the purgatory thing first, right? You've got to you've got to do the waiting. But if you want to skip that, then no body for you. The wicked among them will take bodies if they can unlawfully. The peril of communing with them is therefore not only the peril of being deluded by fantasies or lies. There is peril also of destruction. For one of the hungry houseless, if it is admitted to the friendship of the living, may seek to eject the fea from its body, and in the contest for mastery the body may be gravely injured, even if it be not wrested from its rightful inhabitant. Or the houseless may plead for shelter, and if it is admitted, it will then seek to enslave its host, and use both his will and his body for its own purposes. It is said that Sauron did these things, and taught his followers how to achieve them. Who? Yeah. Um, uh, ah, thank you, James. 1925 was the, uh, uh, the first date of uh, the lay of the first go with the lay of Lathian. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, So, Jocelyn, I don't see any reason to believe that the refusal of the call of Mandos is a one-time thing. Um, I don't think that if you say no to Mandos, that you're stuck. You're now permanently one of the house, one of the hungry houseless, right? Um, you know, Mandos is not coming to you saying this is a one-time offer take it or leave it. Mandos is coming to you saying, this is what happens next. To resist the call of Mandos is like resisting gravity. You can do it, right? I mean, you can do it like if you can hang on long enough, but it's tiring, right? Um, and anytime you let go, gravity is still issuing its invitation to you, right? And I think that that's true um, of the houseless as well. They can still go to Mandos. I don't see any reason to think that they can't still go to Mandos. Um, they, I believe, have to continuously choose not to. They have to continually choose not to. Um, and so, therefore, this hellish existence that is being described here. Well, this is elvish hell. That's what hell looks like. Right? There are three options for elves, long-term options for elves who die. Right? One, rebirth. To receive the blessing and enter back into life have a new Hroa made up, right, so that you can be whole, Thea and Hroa again. That, to be Thea and Hroa combined together, that is the des that's how it's supposed to work. 
that is the natural impulse of all elf souls to want to be in that state. That is the proper destiny of all elves. Ideally, it happens without death at all, right? You're, you, you, you stick with your original Hroa until the end of Arda. But for those who experience tragedy and misfortune and lose their Hroa, right, they can get, then they have the opportunity to get a new one and their suffering will be redressed by the double blessing that is given to them through their second conception, their second nurturing, their second parenting, and their second childhood. But that's the goal. That's the destiny. The second option, though, some go to Mandos, go to the Halls of Waiting and remain there. Houseless, yes. Well, they have a house, right? But they don't have bodies, right? Bodiless, they remain. But they have a home in Mandos, right? Where they are receiving salutary instruction, right? And sometimes this takes a long time. And some elves will remain there. And some choose to remain there, we're told. Some of them opt for it. They, they retire to Mandos. Um, and it's like retirement, right? Because they, 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 can't, they take no further part in the life of Arda. They can watch it. They become only spectators to the life of Arda. So some choose that. And that's okay. That's okay. It's still not really a perfect fulfillment of their destiny, right? To be in a Hroa is the way that they're designed, right? Um, but they, um, they can choose, and that's one other, de- the other, the only other possibility to be embodied in a Hroa, first or second time, to remain in Mandos or to continuously refuse the call to Mandos and always choose to remain in unbodied in Arda, continually frustrated at being able to see what's happening and not being able to interact with it, continuously embittered, aggrieved, envious, self-pitying, um, because those are the things that are keeping you here, Right? ultimately, potentially, to be dominated, to become one of these hungry, houseless spirits who seek to victimize others in order to create this perverted version of the fulfillment of your destiny, right? I'm going to get a Hroa, a new Hroa of my own. I'm going to take somebody else's Hroa, right? I'm going to either eject that other person's Fea from their body and I'm going to take it, or I'm going to possess them. I'm going to dwell with them in their Hroa and seek to enslave them so that I can use their bodies and their wills. Um, that's that's the other option. And so it's it really is quite like heaven, hell, and purgatory. Right? Um, this is elvish hell. And it, it reminds me too, Josiah, of uh, like the city of hell in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. It reminds me a bit of that as, uh, also. Yeah. Um, now, several people asking questions about human fea, and we're kind of touching on that here, right? As I presume that humans also can serve as hosts for fea, but we're talking about elves. 
right? Human souls are different. Um, at the very least, but notice how we're already establishing a different framework. Or rather, we're establishing a framework for understanding how human souls function, right? Because um, it becomes a question of where are you summoned to, right? When the Fea and Hroa are separated, elves immediately, the Fea of the elf immediately receives a summons to Mandos. The human soul also receives a summons <coughs> to somewhere else. Um, can the human soul reject it, refuse it, or not? What happens? Um, we will we will see. We will see. Um, Brian, you are absolutely correct that there was a, uh, a, a, a widespread fascination with the idea of spirit, spiritualism uh, and seances and communicating with the spirits of the dead was a massive cultural thing uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Um, uh, so, I mean, he, he does seem to be I'm not necessarily addressing that directly exactly, but um, yeah, you should not attempt this, right? Not because it's impossible. Keep in mind, you should not attempt this, not because it was impossible, um, but because it was a really bad idea. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, last one. Last one, and then we're done. Kind of. Thus it may be seen that those who in latter days hold that the elves are dangerous to men and that it is folly or wickedness to seek converse with them do not speak without reason. For how it may be asked, shall a mortal distinguish the kinds? Because remember, the consumption of the Hroa, right? As the Hroa and the Fea get closer and closer together, as elves are fading and diminishing, right? They're becoming invisible spirits. So we've got invisible spirits who are embodied elves, but they are like invisible spirits. And then we've got these hungry, hellish spirits, right? Who are, who are also elves, but who are not good, right? How can we poor mortals tell the difference? On the one hand, the houseless rebels at least against, rebels at least against the rulers and maybe even deeper under the shadow. On the other, the lingerers whose bodily forms may no longer be seen by us mortals, or seen only dimly and fitfully. Yet the answer is not in truth difficult. Okay, so uh, this is, uh, we're ending on a highly practical note, right? How to tell the difference when you encounter them. Um, okay. Evil is not one thing among the elves and another among men. Those who give evil counsel or speak against the rulers, or if they dare against the one, are evil and should be shunned, whether bodied or unbodied. Moreover, the lingerers are not houseless, though they may seem to be. They do not desire bodies. Neither do they seek shelter, nor strive for mastery over body or mind. Indeed, they do not seek converse with men at all, save maybe rarely, either for the doing of some good, or because they perceive a man's spirit they perceive in a man's spirit 
some love of things ancient and fair. Then they may reveal to him their forms, though his mind, through his mind working outwardly, maybe, and he will behold them in their beauty. Of such he may have no fear, though he may feel awe of them. For the houseless have no forms to reveal, and even if it were within their power, as some men say, to counterfeit elvish forms, deluding the minds of men with fantasies, such visions would be marred by the evil of their intent. For the hearts of true men uprise in joy to behold the likenesses of the firstborn, their elder kindred, and this joy nothing evil can counterfeit. So spoke Alfwina. Okay. Exactly, Chris. This is where the tales of fairy for the human aftercomers come from, right? There are some men who have the love for things ancient and fair, and to them, sometimes, the faded elves might reveal themselves. It doesn't usually happen. They don't usually converse with mortals at all, but sometimes they will reveal themselves. But you can't mistake it. You can't mistake it. The hungry houseless, the evil spirits, and they have to be called evil spirits. They are both spirits, and they are also evil, right? Even in as much as just refusing the call is is an evil act which is um, making them into this, right? Um, they can't fake the kind of reaction that we have when we encounter the firstborn, the elder kindred. True men uprise in joy to behold the true likeness of the firstborn. I love the first answer, though. How can you tell? Well, you can tell it pretty easily. One is evil. The other is not evil. Right? So, if you're talking to a spirit, and the spirit is... um giving evil counsel, speaking against the rulers or against God himself, right? Um, don't listen to them. Those are the bad guys. Do I have to spell this out? Right? I mean, this is pretty simple, right? Evil is not one thing among elves and another among men. You can tell the difference. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and I agree that Tolkien certainly does reject subjective morality, Stephen. There's no question about that. Um, I love the so-spoke Alfwina at the end of this, because, of course, Alfwina is like one who knows, right? Um, spoke, so-spoke elf friend. So-spoke a human who has encountered the elves, right? If there's anybody who can tell us about how the hearts of true men respond uh, when they encounter the firstborn, Alfwina can tell us, right? Um, and that hasn't changed. That is still the same. Um, yeah. And it is, just I, I agree, it is really cool that this retroactively makes Aragorn's words to Aemir a paraphrase of an ancient Elvish text, right? Yes. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, Yeah, so Zach says, so the fairy stories of elves kidnapping people, are those evil? Uh, yes. Yes. I would say so. Uh, so, like, 
there are stories of wicked elves, right? There are stories of possessions and ghosts and hungry, wicked spirits that try to lure you into temptation and trouble. Uh, you can be whisked away and um, never be heard from again. Um, these things happen. They can happen. Um, and we, he now has an explanation for this, right? A mechanism for this. Um, and this is something that Sauron exploited, but also helped to create because of his domination of these spirits who are still evil, right? Who are still, have not ceased to be dominated by the darkness even after Sauron himself is destroyed. Okay. Um, so, fascinating stuff, huh? It was never clear in the Lay of Lathian, in the Silmarillion material, never clear in there what on earth it meant that Sauron was a necromancer, or what necromancy was. Now we know exactly what necromancy is. It is dominating, enslaving, exploiting, and communicating with the spirits, the unhoused spirits of the elves who refuse the call of Mandos. Pretty amazing, right? Okay, so we didn't quite finish, but we got more than halfway, so I still think that we are uh, uh, not on pace to do this infinitely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Zach says this makes the necromancer of Mirkwood creepier, be, uh, being between two elf kingdoms. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, so we we are beating Zeno, Chris. We're a little bit ahead of Zeno because we got more than halfway through tonight's slides. Slightly more than halfway through tonight's slides. <laughs> but we're getting there. We're so getting there. Next week, we're totally finishing uh, the this, uh, this stuff. But... Um, these have been wonderful discussions and thank you guys for your awesome questions. Uh, and, uh, this, again, as I, as I say, I really think that the, um, uh, the kind of discussions we've been having, the kinds of questions that you're asking are exactly the way this is precisely the spirit in which Tolkien is writing this. Uh, so I think, uh, I think this is all good. Um, all right. Thank you very much. And we will, uh, be back to it next week. Don't forget, don't forget to vote. If you're in the Council of the Wise, vote and we'll see. Next week I shall reveal. Uh, speaking of purgatory and houseless souls and everything else, we have uh, lots of opportunities to, and fairies sweeping humans away. Um, we have all kinds of connections between our subjects here tonight and our potential books for next time. Uh, thanks everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.